This is Due South, broadcasting from the American Tobacco Historic District in downtown Durham. I'm Jeff Tiberi. Today, another installment in our Purple Ballot series with an ear tuned to the Council of State. If you're already familiar, we hope this hour is loaded with context about 10 of North Carolina's most important, influential, and powerful, if not unheralded, elected officials. And if you just thought to yourself, Council of what? Well, a better understanding hopefully lies ahead. After all, if you vote in the March 5th primary or the November general election, all of these races will appear on your ballot. Later in the hour, we'll speak with two candidates running for North Carolina treasurer, an incredibly important fiduciary office that oversees the purse strings of one of the largest public pension funds in the country. And then we'll check in on the office of State Superintendent of Public Instruction, where an incumbent faces a primary challenger. First, big picture. Council of State Framework, and here to help us with the knowledge is Chris Cooper, Robert Lee Madison Distinguished Professor and Director of the Hare Institute for Public Policy at Western Carolina University. He joins us from his office in Cullowhee. Chris, welcome to Do South. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Jeff. In a sentence or three, why is the Council of State important to rank and file North Carolinians? Um, It's one of the very few, well, 10 of the very few statewide offices that we have. If you care about the duties of the executive branch of government in North Carolina, then you care about the Council of State and not just the governor. 10 positions, governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer, public instruction, agriculture, auditor, labor, insurance. Now, presently, six of these offices are held by Republicans, four by Democrats all statewide posts. And through attrition, six of the 10 offices are in effect open contests heading into the March primary. Why do we have these 10? And as one example, North Carolina has an elected, not an appointed commissioner of insurance. There are only 10 other states in the country with such a setup. So why do we have this council of state, Chris? You know, so it's it's like many things in government evolved over the years. So if you go to our last state constitution in North Carolina, right, the 1972 constitution, I know everybody has that one on the Rolodex of uh, important political documents. Um, but uh, it, that last constitution established these 10 offices and established them as being elected offices. So, of course, you're correct, Jeff, that um, this is a choice and that we tend to have a lot of these, right? So there's only four states that have more statewide constitutional offices than we do in the state of North Carolina that are elected. So if you're kind of looking at this ballot and you're saying this seems like a lot of offices, unless you move from one of four states, you're right. It's more than the place you move from, maybe more than the place that you were familiar with before you lived in North Carolina. So as a political scientist, I'm curious to hear from you about the advantages or disadvantages to this system, to having more elected council state positions than than all but four states in the country. Are there more advantages or disadvantages here? You know, I think it depends on how you look at it, right? I mean, the disadvantage is pretty clear. I mean, look, let's be frank, unless you are, I don't know, maybe running for auditor or treasurer, you may not be able to tell us the difference between these two offices, right? I mean, it's hard on voters. It's a it's a bit of a pull for them to be able to figure out exactly what these duties are, exactly what these people do. I think in a general election, it's a little easier. You're you're probably lean towards the Democratic or Republican Party. When it comes to a primary, it may feel like you're sort of shooting blind, right? So there's the, the negative. The positive is 
look, this is not a great system and it's the best system we've got. What is the alternative? The alternative is to have these positions and have you, me, and the rest of the citizens in North Carolina have absolutely no say over them. To have, let's say, the General Assembly do the appointments or perhaps the governor do the appointments. So it puts power into our hands also means it puts responsibility in our hands. I tend to think it's better. I tend to think, given the option, yeah, let's let the people decide, but that doesn't come without some responsibility. And let's be frank, some responsibility that not all citizens are equally uh, adept at executing. Collectively, does the Council of State have any powers? What can it do or not do as a majority body? Really not much. So they do get together and they meet from time to time. But as a body, they don't do a lot. You can kind of think of them like like county commissions for the statewide, right? So they may get together every year, all the different county commissioners, those from, I don't know, Forsyth County and Jackson County and New Hanover County might get together once a year for the North Carolina Association of County Commissioner meeting. But they don't like take votes on issues together. And it's really much the same. They have a very little bit of power considered together collectively, but the real power for the council of state comes individually, right? It's the power of the secretary of state by herself, the power of the AG by themselves, and on and on and on. Quick context, all 10 of these offices receive uh, their funding directly from the North Carolina General Assembly. Chris Cooper, professor of political science and public affairs at Western Carolina University, is here on Due South discussing council of state races. And there are 10 of them as we head toward that March 5th primary. Chris, in 26 states, the governor and lieutenant governor run on a single ticket in tandem. This is not the case here. How come and what does it effectively mean? Yeah, I mean, the how come is... sort of the same answer I gave you before, which is uh, maybe unsatisfactory, right? There's there's not a great reason why. It just kind of is because it is. So we got this new constitution in, uh, in the early 1970s, and they said, this is the way it's going to be. We're going to elect these folks separately. Um, I think the advantage is, again, kind of more choice, right? It does allow you to make your own decision as a voter. And I think it's interesting that we are the only state in the country that has a different party for the governor and the lieutenant governor, right? So what better represents a purple North Carolina? I think the title of your series has something to do with a purple ballot. So what better represents a purple ballot than Democrat Roy Cooper, Republican Mark Robinson, couldn't be more different in terms of party, couldn't be more different in terms of ideology, frankly, couldn't be more different in terms of temperament. And the fact that the voters of the state of North Carolina elected both of them, I think tells us a lot about our state. And if they ran together, I think it would be a little bit less of our choice being reflected in uh, in our elected officials. Wasn't planning on the book plug, but of course I now have to work it in there. I am not contractually <laughs> obligated. I am morally obligated to do this. Uh, Chris Cooper on the line has a, a book coming out later this year. It is, I, if I'm doing this from memory here, it is titled The Anatomy of a Purple State. And that'll be on bookshelves, uh, I believe, beginning in September of this big election year. So, Chris, the attorney general is the so-called top cop in our state. Why is this office so important as we think about the next several years? Sure. Yeah. I mean, they're the top cop. And the other thing they're known as is aspiring governor, right? So the attorney general can can go for either one. So um, we'll, we'll take the top cop first. I mean, this is the person who is at the front lines of litigation about the state of North Carolina. Sometimes they are on the receiving end of that. Sometimes they are on the prosecutorial end of that. Um, in terms of the aspiring governor piece, there is a general sense that 
the lieutenant governor doesn't tend to move folks into the governor's mansion in North Carolina with as much alacrity as the attorney general does. That tends to be where you see folks come from that end up in the governor's seat. And certainly Josh Stein, our, our current attendant, uh, attorney general, both has been involved in some high-profile litigation um, about the state and, as we all know, is also running for governor. So you see the political end and you see the uh, administrative end. So I don't know if it's fair or unfair, but I think about the top of the Council of State as governor, lieutenant governor, and attorney general. A quick random note of uh, context here. Feel free to jump in if you have something fun to add or want to add to it. But Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, Republican, uh, is first in line succession to Governor Cooper if you know he's out of state or if, God forbid, anything were to happen to the governor. Interestingly, maybe, in two of our neighboring states, Tennessee and Virginia, first in line to the governorship is the president of the Senate and not the lieutenant governor. So, you know, just a, a reminder that these things can change uh, can change very much state to state. So we've got the governor, lieutenant governor, attorney general, and these are all open races uh, because Governor Cooper is term limited, lieutenant governor is running for governor, and the attorney general is running for governor. Uh, we also have an open position with the state treasurer. This position is the sole fiduciary of the state's pension fund. There are about 900,000 people who receive a state pension, and the fund is north of $120 billion, making it one of the largest in the country. The holder of this office has incredible influence over how this pension fund grows or doesn't grow. Do I have that right? No, you have that exactly right, Jeff, of course, right? So, I mean, it, it's an incredibly important position. Folks may not know what the treasurer does. I sort of made this joke at the beginning, the difference between the treasurer and the auditor may only be known by the people running for treasurer or auditor. Um, that's a bit of an overstatement, and it's a shame. I mean, these are incredibly important jobs. So even if you don't have a state pension uh, uh, yourself, you probably know somebody who does. And certainly the future of the economy of the state of North Carolina is me based Based on a whole lot of people who are getting this pension, how they spend that money, how they save that money. It's an incredibly important position. So we're seeing Dale Falwell, of course, the Republican who's currently occupying that job, decide that he's going to run for governor. I think the general sense was that he would probably skate to a fairly easy victory uh, if he was decided to run for treasurer again. But he said, forget it. I'm running for governor. Concisely, briefly, to the treasurer's point, as you think about someone who's going to be the sole fiduciary of this massive pension fund, are there experiences or boxes that, you know, candidates ought to check if they're going to pursue this post? You know, I kind of give my same answer here that I would give for many of the other council of state positions like ag or insurance or labor or public instruction, I mean, or auditor, frankly. We ideally would want somebody who has some experience in that sector of the economy, right? We want somebody who understands these issues. And uh, there is no statutory requirement that we have that, right? So, for example, to be commissioner of insurance, you don't have to have ever worked in the insurance industry or know anything about insurance or have any more information than any of the rest of us that currently have an insurance policy. Same thing for ag. You could live, uh, you know, right smack in the middle of the uh, tobacco district in uh, downtown Durham. You can run for commissioner of agriculture with absolutely no experience in that area. So I think ideally, regardless of partisanship, we're going to want some people who know something about that sector of the economy. Chris Cooper is a professor of political science at Western Carolina University. We're chatting about council of state races here on Due South. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back. I'm Jeff Tabiri. This is Due South on WUNC. The latest installment of our Purple Ballot series uh, is including a conversation with Chris Cooper, professor of political science and public affairs at Western Carolina University. He's also uh, the scribe of a book out later this year, this election year, The Anatomy of a Purple State. And we're chatting about Council of State contests in North Carolina. There are 10 of them. North Carolina is actually about... North Carolina is actually one of about a dozen states that elects its superintendent, and that's led to some controversy and political grief in recent years. One of our producers reported on this back in 2020. This clip is from the State Board of Education Chair Eric Davis, who thinks North Carolina should consider appointing instead of electing its top education official. The opportunity for an appointed superintendent does create the chance to hire a seasoned, skilled experienced professional educator to come in and lead our Department of Public Instruction. Now, Chris, we talked a little bit in the uh, first segment a moment ago about appointment versus election capacity or framework. I just want to make sure I've got this straight. If there were going to be a change within the Council of State to shift from an elected to an appointed, there would have to be an amendment to our state constitution, correct? Absolutely. So it is written right now into the state constitution that we have a council of state. It has these 10 offices. They are all elected. Two of them are term limited. The other eight are not. So any change to that structure I just outlined has to go through the um, the state constitutional amendment process. The governor is term limited. And what's the other one? The lieutenant governor is also term limited. And let's keep in mind, too, they are term limited, but it is consecutive terms. So I have no idea, like anybody else, what Roy Cooper is going to do next. But it is at least theoretically possible he could serve two terms. He could sit out four years. He could serve two terms again. Jim Hunt, of course, did that, was uh, elected governor in 1980 and 84, then again in 1992 and 1996. Let's stick with the superintendent of the Department of Public Instruction. What are the fundamental powers of this office and who do they work most closely with? Yeah, so these, I mean, this is the person who administers or oversees um, public schools in the state of North Carolina. But when we say public schools, it's really K through 12 schools, right? So if you're thinking, hey, what does this person have to do with the UNC system? Really not a lot. So this is primarily K through 12 education. They're going to work with local school boards. They're going to work obviously with the educational system in general. They're the people that help oversee state regulations that deal with education more generally. We have yet to discuss five other positions here on the Council of State. Labor, Agriculture, Insurance, Secretary of State, and Auditor. I'm going to try to squeeze a little bit more here uh, in with our conversation with Chris Cooper. Agriculture is one of the state's biggest industries. This commissioner oversees the state fair. What else do they do that's important? Yeah. I mean, essentially, so a lot of these are regulatory bodies, right? They're the folks who help oversee regulation related to each one of these different industries or areas of the economy or areas of life in North Carolina. And so, yes, it's the fair, but I think more important, well, I shouldn't say more importantly, I love a good state fair like anybody, Uh, in addition to... (laughs) We're we're, we're, we're trying to stick on the balance beam here, but... (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. I love a good, my kids love a good fair. I love a good cotton candy. I want somebody who's going to keep that going. And, but and in addition to you that. Have, well, I mean, we're just, we're going off the rails here and that's my fault, but sure. I, I want to roll with it for a second. We, I want to know there's a Western uh, state fair. There, there's a, yes. a lot of people don't know that. Yes, absolutely. Come on out, visit. We'll, uh, well, I'll, I'll treat you some cotton candy, but <laughs> um, 
but yes, the, uh, the the commissioner of agriculture does other things in addition to that. Is essentially, I would think of them as the the person who oversees regulations uh, that uh, that are around the issues around agriculture. And this is a state that is still fairly rural. We have the second most rural voters of any state in the entire country. Rural does not mean agriculture, but uh, certainly there's some overlap there. So this is a really important position moving forward. We have Democrat, of course, running, and then we've got a couple of Republicans running. We have a, um, a, an incumbent as well on that ticket. Secretary of States certify elections in many states. I don't believe all states in the United States. Is that among the, the most important and notable roles here for the Secretary of State? <laughs> Our Secretary of State has very little to do with elections. So um, our Secretary of State has to do with a whole lot of things, um, notaries, for example. But um, when it comes to election, we have a state board of elections. It's really confusing, right? We act like we have one election going on in the United States of America. We have 50 different systems, and our system puts that power mostly with the um, with the state board of elections, very, very little with the Secretary of State. So if you have complaints about our election system, please don't call Elaine Marshall. She's not the one to help you out. Quickly, a thought on the uh, Secretary of the Department of Labor. Why is this important to voters? Right. So the the laugh line here would be about uh, about elevators and about whose picture ends up on the elevator. The much more serious answer is that, and more realistic answer, is that uh, they oversee and regulate anything that has to do with labor, with uh, how much you're allowed to work, with what labor standards are, and just to return to those elevators, how safe those elevators that we're all riding on are. OSHA, uh, if you will. And uh, will pictures be in the elevators in perpetuity? It, it depends who we end up uh, with as our, as, as our next commissioner of labor. Uh, uh, John Hardister, a Republican, I know has come out and said that he's going to bring back the pictures. Other folks have said that they won't. We'll see who wins this election. I hope you vote for it for other reasons but uh, besides that one. But hey, if it gets you to the polls, more power to you. The state auditor is uh, one of those six contests that is open. That's by virtue of the Democrat uh, resigning, leaving her post, Beth Wood, as many listeners will, I suspect, remember, for some controversy in uh, driving a state vehicle in spaces she shouldn't have and also uh, crashing a state-owned vehicle and then leaving the scene of an accident. Um, the state auditor does just what it sounds like, correct, Chris? Yeah, that's exactly right. They are the the person who uh, who audits, who oversees audits. And let's keep in mind, we do have Jessica Holmes, who is the Democrat, is currently in that seat. She was not elected. She was appointed by the governor um, very recently. And finally, last but not least, maybe at least to some, but the, um, the commissioner of insurance is involved with um, recommendation uh, as we as we think about setting rates and uh, the cost of insurance across the state. They're also the fire commissioner in the state. Tell us a little bit about our yeah. um, insurance commissioner. Yeah, no, that's that, that's exactly right. I mean, most of us, I hope all of us, <laughs> have some form of insurance. And if you care what those rates are, if you care what they cover, if you care about how the insurance industry is regulated, this office matters. It matters to your life. It matters to my life. Um, anybody with insurance or the expectation to have insurance at some point. And uh, this is another one that uh, most states do not elect. So we are one of only 10 states that does elect the insurance commissioner. So we're a little unusual there. 
oftentimes when I'm on uh, talking to, to you, Jeff, I'll say, well, this is a Southern thing or this tends to work in some region. Not true at all, right? So if you look at the states that have insurance commissioner, yeah, there's some Southern ones, Mississippi, Louisiana, Georgia, us, but you're also looking at California, Washington State, Montana, North Dakota. It's all over the map, quite literally. As we've discussed, these are important offices with some considerable authority Yet, unless you're going to break any news, there is not widespread knowledge of the roles or really who fills them in any given year. So six offices are open heading into March. Governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, labor, attorney general, and auditor. And all 10 are on the ballot. And I'm curious from your perspective, uh, how can voters better or best consider candidates, learn more about them, make an informed choice? Yeah, no, that's I think the first thing to do is to to study up on what these offices actually do, right? So I mean, yeah, we've gone over some thumbnails here, but um spend some time on the websites of these offices. Try to figure out exactly what their powers are and then I hate to say it, but spend some time on the websites of these candidates that are running. Unfortunately, we are unlikely to see a lot of debates, right? I mean, you can't. Ima- I cannot imagine that we're going to see, uh, for example, commissioner of insurance debate that's going to pack the house and be on every TV station in the state. So I think you're going to have to do a little bit more legwork here. I guess my one thing would be it's worth it to do your legwork. And if you show up and vote, Don't just start at the top of the ticket and engage what we call ballot roll-off, where you just kind of quit filling it out at a certain point. These offices do matter. We also have a lot of competitive primaries. Lieutenant governor has 11 folks running on the Republican side. So we may even see a second primary on on perhaps some of these offices. Threshold 30%. So if uh, no candidate receives 30% plus one, uh, it will go to uh, a second primary this spring. Chris Cooper is the Robert Lee Madison Distinguished Professor and Director of the Hare Institute for Public Policy at Western Carolina University, and he has joined us from his office in Cullowhee. Chris, thanks for the knowledge. Yeah, thanks so much, Jeff. This is Due South. I'm Jeff Tabiri. As you're aware by now, you've heard in this hour, this episode is our latest edition in the Purple Ballot series. We're following the civics, policies, and effects of the 2024 elections here in North Carolina and in our region, the South. We've made it easy for you to reach us. Do South at WUNC.org. You can find past episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Apple, iTunes, Spotify, etc., etc. All right, now we're going to get back to our Purple Ballot episode on the Council of State. Due South rolls along here on WUNC. This episode is another in our Purple Ballot series, which aims to better inform you about the issues, candidates, and points of entry to the 2024 ballot. Council of State is our focus today. In a bit, we'll turn our focus to the Republican primary race for superintendent of public instruction. First, we're speaking separately with the two Democratic candidates for state treasurer. Quick reminder, The treasurer position is open as the incumbent, Republican Dale Falwell, is seeking the gubernatorial nomination and thus not running again for this post. You can't run for two offices. First up in our queue is Wesley Harris. He's in his third term as a state house member serving a Mecklenburg County district. His full-time job is an economic consultant. Harris holds an undergraduate degree from UNC Chapel Hill, a master's and a PhD from Clemson University. He's 37 years old and he joins us now on Due South. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
No stump speeches, please. Concisely, <laughs> concisely. I'll try. I'll try. I'll why try. are you? I'm going to come back if you don't. Concisely, why are you, Wesley Harris, the best choice to be the next treasurer of North Carolina? I'm the best choice because I know North Carolina. I've I've born and bred North Carolina. Grew up in rural uh, Alexander County and Iredell County. Um, lived here most uh, most of my life, aside from a little bit after after undergrad. But I, I've seen firsthand what happens when you have a state government that invests in its people. Everything I am today is because. Because I had a state government that invested in me. And I've seen firsthand uh, since my time in the legislature what has happened as we've undercut these investments in our in our state, undercut these investments in our communities and in our state employees. And we've seen that slowly start to build cracks in our system. And mm-hmm. so I'm running for treasurer so we can we can fix that because we have so much potential still and so many things going for us, but we got to make sure that we have our finances in order. And, and I've uh, the way We've seen things function and the way we finance things in the past couple of years, just since I've been in the legislature, has really kind of hindered what we could be doing right now as a state. There's one other Democratic candidate in this race. His name is Gabe Esparza. What differentiates you from your opponent in this primary? Uh, well, I'm the only candidate in this. I'm the only candidate in this race, Republican and uh, and Democrat, that has actually served in an elected position. I've won a competitive race in South Charlotte. I uh, I grew up in rural North Carolina. I'm the only one in this race who's lived in rural North Carolina, suburban North Carolina, and urban North Carolina. And I have those relationships in the General Assembly. I think I'm you know pretty well respected. On on, on both sides of the aisle. I've been the lead Democrat on every finance, pretty much every finance and economic issue since I've been elected. I've been our lead uh, Democrat in the finance committee the past two terms and was the lead Democrat on our budget committee th- this past term. And so I would wager there is not an elected Democrat in North Carolina that understands our budget and state finances better than I do. Let's chat briefly about outgoing state treasurer Dale Falwell, a Republican. Mm-hmm. How would you rate his effectiveness across the last eight years? A letter grade, please. I'd give him a C. Um, C at best. You know, he's he's done some things that have made you know state employees happy, which is certainly certainly good. I'm I'm glad that I have the support of the state employees. I've actually, gotten just endorsed by Scenic today, mm-hmm. and. But our pension plan has lagged behind market indices, indices. And while our premiums have remained constant for the state health plan, our benefits have started to fall. And, uh, and so we got we to gotta boost those up. And the warfare that we've had between our local government commission and our local governments bringing the politics into you know, municipalities just trying to fund investment projects have, have really hindered our ability to make those investments we need. What is one thing you would build upon, which the treasurer has done, which you would carry into your tenure in office? And what is uh, one way in which you would differentiate? Uh, one of the things I would I would carry on, I, I do like the fact that how he's changed the local government commission to meet around the state so that more people get get access to, to what's going on and price transparency with the, with the state health plan. I think those are critical because you have to know what prices are if you want to be able to make the, make the right choices. Um, how I would improve upon that, um, particularly with the state health plan, is you got to work with the hospitals yeah. uh, of the sense that it can't be a complete adversarial relationship because – you, you have to work together. And if we do what we're supposed to do on the state health plan and the hospitals do what they're supposed to do, everyone's going to be able to benefit for it to make sure that we can get the best health care for our state employees, improve wellness plans so we can actually lower the cost uh, of health care and work with hospitals so that they are going to be able to benefit from it as well. Treasurer Falwell has been criticized by some for the relatively high percentage of the state's pension fund that he kept in cash. Uh, this during 
COVID times is during a, a you know a significant downturn in the economy. What percentage of the state's roughly hundred and twenty mm-hmm. billion dollar pension fund would you keep in cash? Uh, that's a good question. So right now it's probably around like sixteen to eighteen percent, which is higher than any other state. And so you got to lower that. You got you got to lower that down to around what other what other states are doing. And so probably around like you know ten to ten to twelve percent or a little bit less than that, just to you know make sure you can still fulfill your obligations. And that gets harder as we have such a huge vacancy crisis in our state employment that we're having an older and older and older older state employment. So we're going to have to pay out more and more. And so I would probably target around like 10 to 12 percent just to make sure that we can get those. You know, that's that's a couple that's a couple billion dollars we're talking about that we can get some extra returns that could actually make us be able to lever and be able to get some cost of living adjustments for our state employees. Wesley Harris is with us here on Due South. He is a three-term state lawmaker from Mecklenburg County. He's seeking the Democratic nomination in the race for state treasurer. Representative Harris, what is your experience managing financial funds? Um, so I, prior to getting elected, I, I was an economic consultant. And so, you know, I did, um, I was up in Boston. I did a lot with pharmaceutical companies of valuing valuing those companies and making sure, pretty much valuing their intellectual property. And so that that's really my, my extent of, you know, making sure that we are able to value companies and make sure we're getting the best bang for our buck and understand what's going on in our portfolios of that, the companies that we're having, the companies that we're using are strong companies. They're, they're high performing companies. So mm-hmm. we can be able to make the investments that we need. I just want to make sure I've got it right. I'm not trying to throw shade, but just to, for clarity, you don't have direct experience. You have indirect experience right. managing Correct. financial yep. funds. Is that a fair way yep. to put it? Yep. Okay. Uh, okay. Brass tax. If you are the next treasurer, even as the sole fiduciary of the massive state pension fund, you will have to work with the Republican-led mm-hmm. state legislature on some issues. You are a Democrat. So how will you effectively do that? Uh, you you got to pull the economics for it. You know, like, like I say, I, one thing I like about finance is at the end of the day, it's a math problem. And so even on the finance committee in the Senate and the House, you know, there's not a ton of politics in it. You can argue about tax cuts and whatnot, but it's a math problem. And so the math works. And so I think in a lot of part of this, a lot of many parts of this state, they know the investments that they need. Mm -hmm. Uh, They know the financial investments that they need and they know the struggling areas. And so those are areas that are also represented by Republicans. And so there are avenues where we can find some some places to work together, because at the end of the day, you know, when we talk about state employees, the number one employer in 61 of our counties is a government entity. Um, either the public school system or, or another another government agency. And so the largest employer in a lot of these red districts are and are state employees. And so they benefit from that. Their constituents benefit from that. And so there are benefits that they can take home for for them. And so we we all we all do better when we all do better. And so I, I think having that joint investment across the state is something that will appeal to a lot of these Republican legislatures in these rural areas where we can find some common ground. I'm going to leave about 30 seconds for this one. Why should a prospective North Carolina voter listening to this conversation care about who their treasurer is? They should care about who the treasurer is because it impacts how efficient our state government is going to be. We have squandered so much money in the past six to eight years from poor financing of spending cash on absolutely everything. And that's led to that's led to teacher vacancies. That's led to state employment vacancies. That's led to a lack of infrastructure. That's led to crowded roads. That's led to lack of investments. That's led to higher property taxes mm-hmm. because we're shifting all that burden to our counties. And so it affects your day-to-day life. And so if we finance our state in a smart way, an efficient way, we're all going to benefit for it. We can be able to handle our growth, 
every part of our state is going to be able to grow. We can bridge this urban-rural divide, solve a lot of our politics, and all of us will be in so much better position. Wesley Harris is a Democrat seeking the nomination for state treasurer. The primary is March 5th. Early voting begins mid-February. Wesley, thanks for joining us here on Do South. Yeah, it's great to be here. On the other side, you'll hear some similar questions as we visit with the other Democratic treasurer candidate. The answer is after the break. I'm Jeff Tabiri. This is Do South on WUNC. Welcome back. It's Do South on WUNC. We're in the midst of our latest installment as part of our Purple Ballot series, hoping to bring you a little information and context about Council of State contests and offices in North Carolina. We're going to spend some more time now on that state treasurer's race, and we're speaking with the other Democratic candidate. He's a graduate of both Harvard and Stanford. He has served uh, in a Biden administration post, uh, and he is in uh, private business now. He's 51 years old, and his name is Gabe Esparza. Gabe, welcome to Do South. Thank you for having me. And a quick note just off the top. We did extend an invite to both candidates to do a joint interview. Gabe Esparza agreed to that joint interview. Wesley Harris did not. All right, Gabe, no stump speeches, please. And I will push back if you do a stump speech. Uh, concisely, why are you, Gabe Esparza, the best choice to be the next treasurer of North Carolina? Very simply, I bring 25 plus years of experience, both in the private sector and the public sector, with executive management experience, managing people, managing budgets, managing organizations, managing money, which is particularly relevant in this job. So if experience in the role is what is needed, I'm the man for the job. I think you're alluding to your answer there uh, in kind of an instructive way for the next question, but I'll ask it verbatim as I did uh, earlier. Uh, There's one other Democratic candidate in this race, Wesley Harris. What differentiates you from your opponent in this primary? It principally starts with that experience, right? You have to look at who has actual experience. The treasurer's office is north of 450 people. I've managed large organizations like that. My opponent has not. Uh, I have managed budgets. I have managed deals and negotiating. So another example, uh, the state health care plan falls under the treasurer's responsibility. And that would require going out and negotiating with hospitals, mm-hmm. insurance companies, pharmaceutical companies. I have gone toe-to-toe in the corporate world and in the federal government world, in this case with other countries uh, on behalf of the American government. Uh, and so to be able to bring that experience to the table is critically important. You can't just put a rookie in there who has never managed people, let alone never gone toe-to-toe with big corporate interests. And so I bring that very relevant experience to the table. Republican State Treasurer Dale Falwell is seeking the nomination for governor, thus not running for this office Correct. and making this an open seat. Interested in how you would rate the effectiveness of Treasurer Falwell. He's been on the job for seven years now in his eighth year. A letter grade to start, please. F. And I'll tell you why. The most important role of the state treasurer is to maximize the returns on the state pension fund for the long-term stability and prosperity of all of those retirees, former state employees who had for decades committed their time and service to the state. If that state pension fund is not in good shape, we are not doing our job as a treasurer. And Dale Falwell has an F. The Yale School of Management did a study both on three-year and five-year annualized returns on the funds. 
And North Carolina State Pension Fund ranks last, 50th out of 50. Uh, that is In what context? That's in the last five to 10 years? Or three-year returns on the fund and five-year returns on the funds. You can measure them. Right. But what's the period. window of time we're looking at? That's it, it, it's, I mean, it's across the last three years and across the last So we five don't years. have 23 full-year okay, data yet, but it's 22, 21, and 20. Yeah, got it. Okay. And that's the three-year period and then the five-year period before that. And that's the external measure. Even on his own internal measures, he has fallen short. And mind you, that the fund needs 7 to 8% of a return on investment every year to fund the liabilities or to fund the payouts to the current retirees. To remain solvent. To remain full, correct, to remain solvent. As much coming in as as much needing to go out. And his own internal benchmark is now down to 650, 675, 6.75%, which suggests he is not even setting the bar high enough to fully fund the obligations of the payouts, therefore shifting the burden to the taxpayers, either the General Assembly or the state agencies themselves who have to pay into the fund. And this is one of the hidden secrets news related to this race is that there is simply not enough return on the fund to to meet all his obligations. Gabe Esparza is here on Due South. He is a Democrat seeking the nomination for the office of state treasurer. He has never before run for elected office. Serious question. I want you to come up with something, Gabe. What is one thing you would do the same as the sitting treasurer? Well, the other big responsibility of the role is to manage the state health care plan. And uh, I give credit to Dale Falwell, this treasurer for having put an enormous amount of focus on transparency in pricing from hospitals and pharmaceutical companies and beat them up on making sure they are transparent and faithful negotiators. Uh, And I would continue that uh, and, again, be able to bring that experience having gone toe-to-toe with corporate interests and other federal government uh, Mm -hmm. interactions to make sure that we Keep healthcare costs low. Keep healthcare costs low. That is the most important piece of the healthcare. You plan. like his clear pricing plan, but you, you, it doesn't elevate him to a D in your book. It- no, the the challenge with the clear pricing plan mm-hmm. is that it is appealing to the users, to our state employees and retirees, right. but the various networks and hospital interests have not entirely opted into it, and so there is still some uncertainty as to what whether your doctor is going to take the clear pricing plan parameters or not. And so there's some of that instability in the system. Treasurer Falwell has been criticized by some for the relatively high percentage of the state's pension fund that he has kept in cash. Yes. What percentage of the state's roughly $120 billion pension fund would you keep in cash? So he's got about $16 billion right now that's sitting in the cash. That is an enormous opportunity cost. He needed to have put that money to work. It's no surprise that we're 50th out of 50. I would put at least another $10 billion of that to work across the portfolio, whether that's public equities, private equities, real assets, fixed income, doesn't matter. The point is it should be someplace other than sitting in cash. At least $10 billion of the current $16 billion that's sitting there in cash, I would put to work. Which, from a percentage standpoint, you would have 4 to 5% in cash. That's correct. What is your experience managing financial funds, briefly? In-depth uh, and broad. In my last two years uh, in the Biden administration, 
I managed a $600 million loan program for the U.S. Small Business Administration. Right? That's an enormous amount of money going to stimulate small business growth around the country for 33 million American small businesses. Uh, before that, as a part of the uh, startup entrepreneurial world, went out and raised $200 million in venture funding for a 911 technology company that I was involved with, both as an investor and operator. And before that, 13 years at American Express, where we were extending billions of dollars of credit to American consumers. And so my experience in financial services and in money management, understanding capital markets is deep and beyond anybody in the race as relevant as possible for this particular uh, role as state treasurer. Brass tax, if you're the next treasurer, even as the sole fiduciary, you'll be a Democrat who has to, in some ways, work with a Republican-led state legislature. How would you effectively do that? Well, wherever possible, we want to make sure that uh, the parameters of the state treasurer's office are most effective and broad in being able to maximize the return on the fund. You might or might not know that the General Assembly passed a law that restricted ESG funding, ESG investing in particular. Mm -hmm. So I would, of course, follow the law. But I don't think the legislative branch should be handcuffing a duly elected member of the executive branch on how to manage the fund. Let the treasurer, to the best of his or her ability, right. go and manage the fund. 15, 20 seconds. Why should a prospective North Carolina voter who hears this conversation care about who the treasurer is? Well, you pointed out a moment ago that this is uh, the, the North Carolina state treasurer is the sole fiduciary. Right? There is no board above the treasurer that manages and helps oversee the fund. It is the single largest fund, save for New York, managed by one person in the entire United States. It is enormously powerful. Similar to that, there are very few states whose state health care plan also falls under the purview of the state treasurer. Those two things combined mean North Carolina state treasurer is particularly powerful. And for somebody like me to come in and be able to not only bring my relevant 25 years plus of experience, but a nationwide set of networks and relationships, mm -hmm. federal government, private sector, that, bring, that elevates North Carolina's stature in competing in the global marketplace, the national marketplace, of course, and still here in the state marketplace. Gabe Esparza is a Democrat seeking the nomination on the Democratic side for state treasurer. Gabe, thanks for joining Due South. Thank you. A few more moments remain here on Due South in this purple ballot Council of State episode. Let's turn to the race for state school superintendent. That's where a sitting incumbent, Republican Catherine Truitt, is seeking another four-year term. She does have a GOP primary challenger, and we'll talk with the challenger in a bit. As for Truitt, during three-plus years on the job, she has aligned herself reliably with the Republican-controlled North Carolina General Assembly. Superintendent Truitt is an advocate for school voucher expansion and the growth of charter schools. She has touted a proposal to overhaul licensure and pay structure for K-12 public educators, much to the chagrin of some public educators. And Truitt also backed a controversial Parents' Bill of Rights, which was enacted into law following a gubernatorial veto and subsequent override last year. At the beginning of her term, Truett told WUNC there was a lot of work to be done. 67% of students do not start high school reading and doing math proficiently. We've got some serious inequities to fix here. And um, 
a lot of the challenges with the, the, the reading portion and then the math follows on is that we're not using, by and large, in our state, our teachers are, are not being trained on how to use research-backed methods of early literacy instruction. So um, this is all fancy for we need to teach students how to decode when they learn how to read, which is phonics. The pandemic presented many challenges to public schools. Among the impacts of the lockdowns and remote learning were test scores and students falling behind normal outcomes. That has been the case in North Carolina. But in a report out earlier this month, third grade reading metrics are showing some improvement. This compared to 2021 and 2022. Touting that improvement is a note Truett has struck, including during this promotional video that appears on YouTube. I'm proud to say that we're seeing tremendous gains achieved by students during the second full year of implementing this statewide initiative. This past June, 29 North Carolina districts completed this rigorous professional learning. Our remaining districts are set to complete their letters training by the summer of 2024, and we are optimistic that more good news awaits us in the form of student gains in reading proficiency. That's Catherine Truitt, the sitting state superintendent. Due South did provide an invitation and opportunity for Truett to join the program, which ultimately did not come to fruition. That invitation is open-ended. Let's spend our final few minutes with the Republican trying to defeat Truett in the primary. She's a Wake County mother and nurse who has never held public office before, though she did run, albeit unsuccessfully, for a Cary School Board post in 2022. My name is Michelle Morrow, and I am running to be the next state superintendent of public instruction. How would you describe yourself on the political spectrum from grew up in a political family to novice? Just tell us where you are, in, not in terms of ideology, we'll get there in a second, but in terms of involvement. You know, we were never a political family, and I, but I really got involved about nine years ago when we moved back to North Carolina, um, and part of that is through homeschooling my kids and doing history with them and doing constitutional history, and that really kind of um, provoked my interest in it and, and my passion to actually educate and empower others because I feel like civics is very lacking in our state. Uh, there's already a Republican state superintendent. She's uh, asking the voters for a second term in office. From your perspective, why does she need to be replaced? Because she has not stood up and put safety, scholastics, and responsible spending first and foremost um, for our students. The fact that we have um, we have so many students that are not proficient in reading and math, and um, she has not stood up for the freedoms um, of parents, uh, the opening of the schools. And really, I feel like the what's happening in our schools right now is there's a lot of political agenda. There has been a, a massive increase in the, the racial divide that's not only being discussed, it's being taught and it's being promoted in teacher trainings. And that is one thing that the superintendent has responsibility for. So I feel like our children are not getting the education they need to be productive, critically thinking, hardworking North Carolinians. As a former state legislative reporter, I apologize for my questions nationalizing politics, but it is the reality that we live in. So I'm going to uh, just leave you a blank here and I want you to fill it in. Former President Donald Trump is blank. Uh, is a 
a reformer and is exactly what we need to get back to a constitutional republic and to we the people. Civics, you said civics is lacking. What reform would you like to see enacted? Would you push forward if elected state superintendent as it pertains to civics in our K through 12 public classrooms? I really believe from sixth through 12th grade, our children should be taught what the role of government is and what the role of the people are. Because the original foundation of the Constitution was the government does not give us our rights. Our rights are given to us by God. And the only reason why we created a government was to protect our individual liberties. Uh, Forecast for me. What is the tally on Wednesday, March 6th? What percentage of the vote does Michelle Morrow have? What percentage of the vote does Catherine Truitt have? Uh, Michelle has 80 and Catherine has 20. What do you really think? I think it's going to be 80-20. You think you're going to beat the the incumbent superintendent by an eight to two margin? Yep. I'm hopeful. Listen, I, I come to that number only because as I have been praying about what we're doing, that's the number that came to me. I'm at time. So I'm going to uh, say thank you for joining us on Do South. And uh, hopefully, uh, if it is an eight out of 10 margin for you, we will uh, reconvene at some point in the spring or summer uh, in advance of the general election. Will you only do it if it's eight to two? No, <laughs> no, 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 no. To be clear, if you are the nominee, we would love to have you back on Do South at some point in between March 6th and November the 5th or whatever it is. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> Michelle Morrow is a Republican seeking the nomination in the contest for state superintendent. This episode in our Purple Ballot series was produced by Cole Del Charco. For past episodes, please visit DoSouthRadio.org and join us tomorrow at 10.